You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armor All. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch wherever you get your podcasts. When is the last time you were in a power outage? It's been a while, although, you know, we have very active squirrels where I live. So, in fact, uh, the power does go out, but usually only for about an hour. You know, I was in one recently, and it was actually fun. I mean, of course, computers keep working if they're on battery power, but the lights were off all down the block, uh, couldn't turn on the radios. Nothing that you plugged in worked, and it was a nice break from it all. Yeah, was it when all the food in the fridge spoiled? I mean, was that a good break? (laughs) <laughs> I, I think we don't recognize how dependent we are on that uh, that energy coming in via wires into our house. Yeah, we absolutely take it for granted. All you have to do is flick a switch. That's that right. Comes on. That's right. And we think that's normal. Whereas if you were born 150 years ago and you wanted to read a book at night, you couldn't just flip a switch. That wasn't part of the deal. You had to light something, maybe an oil. Strike a match. You had to strike yeah. a match. I mean, this whole idea of energy being distributed via wires so that you could do that in your house. You didn't need a steam engine in the basement or something. And and that's a new idea. And it came from the work of... Edison? Yes. Well, Edison, yes, in the sense that he invented the first practical light bulb. Everybody knows that. And that led to the development of an industry to, you know, distribute electricity. But it was really Nikola Tesla that made that work. He was the one who invented alternating current. Uh, that's That's his idea. That was not Edison's idea. And the widespread distribution of electric power really changed people's lives. There are other inventions in the pipeline that just might do the same today. And, and not just in your house, but also in your car. I mean, there are new technologies coming along that might change the whole landscape of not only how we use energy, but also how we produce it. I'm Molly Bentley. Took a lot of energy to say that. I'm Seth Shostak. This is Big Picture Science, where we continue with our shocking conversation about electricity. Okay, well, coming back to Tesla, you talked about the AC alternating current. What is alternating current? Yeah, this was the idea of of Tesla, actually, that if you wanted to make electricity available to a lot of people, that meant you had to produce it here in some generating plant. That was understood. But you also had to have wires that took it to wherever you needed to use it. And Edison was using what's called direct current. In other words, it was just a fixed voltage. It was like a battery. A battery produces, you know, one and a half volts and whatever. But the problem with that is that the the, the wires cause loss. It's like trying to put water down a narrow pipe, a tiny pipe. You you know, it's too much friction. Tesla figured out that if you made the current alternating, in other words, first it goes one way and then it goes the other way, it goes back and forth, back and forth, 60 times a second, as it turns out, that you could use wires that were thinner and would have less loss because you could jack the voltage up to high voltages, like thousands of volts, send it, you know, to the other side of the city and then have a transformer, which essentially brings it down to 110 volts that you can put in people's homes. Okay, all of that is a technical story. But what it really meant was that now it was practical to have an electrical distribution system and everybody could have electricity. And I understand there's a connection between Tesla and Frankenstein. Well, Frankenstein, (laughs) probably no direct connection, uh, except that Frankenstein seemed to use high voltage, alternating current voltage, by the way, to uh, animate his uh, bodies, his, his humanoids, uh, it was, you know, the monster. So Dr. Frankenstein, we're, we're referring to right now. We are talking about Dr. Frankenstein. You know, you remember the film. There's this, this thing lying on a gurney of some sort, and right next to it is this Jacob's Ladder. 
the thing that goes zzz, zzz, zzz. That's it. That's a Jacob's Ladder. If you looked at it, it looks like one of those rabbit ear antennas you have on top of your uh, television. I don't know if you still have one. I do. Uh, and, and the spark goes between it, and it just climbs those those two rods. So that's why it's called a ladder. But to make that go, you have to have a lot of high voltage. And usually the way you do that is with what's called a Tesla coil sitting next to it, you know, just big uh, tower of wire, really. <laughs> a Tesla coil that might produce 10, 20,000 volts. The voltage is so high that it can actually spark from one side to the other. It's yeah. just like lightning, really. Now, is this enough to animate an inanimate object as it did in the Frankenstein movie? You know, you can go down to the morgue and put all the Jacob's ladders you want next to the dead bodies, and I doubt any of them is going to come back to life. But it certainly looked neat, and in the 1930s when they're making these films, I mean, you know, electricity was still relatively new for a lot of people. So now we've gathered that Nikola Tesla played a powerful role in the electrical revolution that transformed American life at the turn of the last century. But the life of this Serbian engineer is still relatively obscure. Historian Bernard Carlson at the University of Virginia hopes to change that. He is the author of Tesla, Inventor of the Electric Age. Bernie, just about anyone interested in the history of technology, particularly electricity and radio, knows of Edison and Marconi. But Nikola Tesla has recently become almost a cult figure for the geek crowd. What suddenly put him in the spotlight? Well, Seth, some of it is the reappearance of the Tesla Motor Company and the success that they're having with their new electric vehicle. But another part of it is is that Tesla is a fascinating character that people with a variety of backgrounds, from young teenagers playing on video games to new age folks, love Tesla as someone who was a underdog and an intuitive and sort of magical person. And he really counters the sort of profiteering, big business, big system sort of approach that Edison so well exemplified. So he really is at a, at a counterpoint to Edison. So, so it's kind of a cultural thing. They just sort of like his approach to doing things. That's right. In many ways, you could sort of argue that there's a whole set of people that say that the world is rational, it's orderly, it's about maximizing whatever energy that you have, the profits that you're going to have. And the other side of it would sort of say, well, the world is really about spirit, and it's about magic, and it's about intuition. And Tesla embodies that, that second set of characteristics. Every time I plug something electrical in at home, I'm reminded that the 110-volt AC current that we all use every day was really, I mean, that was Tesla's idea, not Pacific Gas and Electrics here. Can, can you tell me that story? Yes, I can. In the uh, 1870s and 1880s, people began developing new electric power systems using generators, and when they did so, they thought analogously to batteries. Batteries produce electricity at a set voltage and people began to think, well, let's make the first machines for generating electricity, that's what a generator is, to be just like a battery. And so as a result, the first machines were direct current. Now, this has a number of problems. The machines can spark, the generators don't send the current over long enough distances to really build a robust power system. And Tesla came along in the 1880s and became fascinated by the possibility of building a better motor and in particular, as he was working on a better motor, he decided he wanted to work with alternating current. That is, say, the voltage goes up to a maximum of 120 and then down to a minimum of minus 120 volts. And he wanted to use that sort of current. And as a result of the fact that he came up with a great motor, we now rely on alternating current to provide all the power that we use in our homes and businesses. Now, you mentioned the fact that uh, direct current is not really great if you have to distribute it over any sort of distance. Uh, I recall that uh, historically Thomas Edison had set up a generating plant in downtown New York, actually, Manhattan there, because he was trying to sell his electric light bulbs, I presume, and it ran on direct current. But he couldn't send that power any farther than, what, half a mile or a couple of blocks or a something. A mile radius is essentially the first system that he had on Pearl Street, which is just around the corner from Wall Street. And he really was limited to a circle of about that dimension in order to be able to get the power there without having huge losses or having to install gigantic copper wires. Okay, so, but the big advantage of alternating current here was that you could send it over long distances. You could have a generating plant here and supply customers that were many miles away 
because you could jack it up to higher voltages with transformers and then bring it back down at the customer's uh, uh, house, right? Exactly. So you could basically generate the current at a high voltage, transmit it over long distances, because the higher the voltage, the lower the losses are and the smaller a copper main or, or a cable you need. And the important thing is on the other end, you could have another transformer that stepped down the power from thousands of volts to the 220 that you want to bring into your house. Okay. Now, uh, but Edison was an established player in this field, and Tesla has this, from a technical standpoint, he has a better idea. Uh, I, I believe that his breakthrough came with his association with George Westinghouse. How, how did that happen? How did Tesla get into the game here? Well, Tesla began his career by studying engineering in what was then the Austrian Empire. And he was fascinated with electricity. He, he got an idea for a motor while he was uh, sitting in a classroom watching a demonstration where the motor sparked too badly. And he decided that he put himself on a path to invent a better spark-free motor. And that led him to work first for the, an Edison organization in Budapest where they were trying to install one of the first telephone switchboard systems. He did well there. He was promoted to being a field engineer at the Edison organization in Paris. And in 1884, he sent to America to work for the Edison Machine Works. And he's there for a few months. And he leaves there, continuing to want to develop his motor. And after a number of tries, he finally winds up with a very good team of business entrepreneurs, partners, that essentially hire the very best patent attorneys for him, build a laboratory on Liberty Street, and in 1887, he perfected the wonderful alternating current motor there. Now, Tesla's strategy was not to set up a manufacturing business like Edison did, but rather to get really good patents, promote the patents, promote the invention through newspaper stories, through publicity, through demonstrations, and then, when everybody was really excited about it, to sell those patents to the highest bidder. And George Westinghouse, in 1888 was the highest bidder. And Westinghouse took over the patents, handed it over to his engineers, and his engineers then worked on Tesla's motor ideas for about five years and finally introduced around the time of the Chicago World's Fair in 1893 a successful alternating current system. And that system was subsequently installed at Niagara, and that was the first really big demonstration in America of how far and how effectively you could transmit electric power. So, so that was the, the, the triumph there, Niagara Falls, getting power out of the falls and sending it down to Buffalo for factories. That's right, to Buffalo, which was 26 miles away, and nobody had ever imagined that you could transmit millions and millions of watts of power over a distance like that. And it really captivated and convinced investors and business people to go on ahead and build bigger electric power stations. So people, instead of building those neighborhood stations that were the kind of pride of Edison that served neighborhood of about a mile in radius, you could now have an entire system first that would serve a whole city. And then after that, you could even begin to service an entire region or an entire state. Uh, Edison didn't sit still for this, did he? I mean, I, I think there's a film, you, you might even be able to see it on YouTube, in which he, he would have demonstrations trying to show that alternating current was dangerous. Well, what happened is, is Westinghouse was a very successful manufacturer in his own right before he gets involved in electricity. And so George Westinghouse had deep pockets, and he decided that he was the latecomer to the industry. And what Westinghouse would do is, is he would come in and he would bid on building a new power plant in, say, San Jose, California, and he basically decided that he was going to have the business over the long term, so he'd lowball the contract. And this really irritated the living daylights out of the Edison organization because they felt that it was dirty pool. Edison really operated in a kind of a 19th century business sense, which is, if it costs me X to do something, then I will charge you X plus whatever we think is an appropriate profit margin. And here Westinghouse is pricing things in an entirely different way. So from Edison's standpoint, Westinghouse is already behaving badly, and so they decide to go after the Westinghouse organization by challenging the safety of alternating current, which indeed it does work at higher voltages, and unless you have really good insulation and your entire system is designed carefully, you can electrocute people, and, and indeed people did accidentally get electrocuted in big cities where they were installing the first alternating current systems. So the Edison company does decide that they're going to go on this sort of smear campaign against the Westinghouse company, and one of the things that they do is they will electrocute animals to demonstrate the dangers of alternating current. 
Yeah, I, I think they, they took out an elephant. No, no, no. Fact alert, fact alert. No <laughs> elephants were killed. The elephant was actually killed at Coney Island. It was a very old elephant that had been in the circus for, I don't know, 20 years, named Topsy, and Topsy was getting to be very violent, and the Edison Company had nothing to do with actually electrocuting the, the elephant. In fact, the battle occurrence was well over in 1903 when Topsy was put down. And uh, I, I just... Uh, I must emphasize that that is one of those great urban myths that then I, I get questions about all the time. No, no, no power to the pachyderms. Well, I'm actually kind of pleased to hear that. Yes. Bernie, what eventually happened to Tesla? Because most of these great steps forward were done in a, you know, in a very brief interval in his life. Yes, he really had an incredible 10 years from 1884. He arrives penniless, as a, basically an unknown engineer in New York City. And by 1894, he's the toast of the town. He's, he's dining in Delmonico's. He's turning up on the front page of the major newspapers of the time. He's receiving honorary degrees. By 1904, he's basically had a nervous breakdown. His whole idea about wireless power has, has failed. And the rest of his life is actually very sad. But in those 20 years, he did an amazing number of things, such as alternating current, or the wireless power, or indeed a radio-controlled boat that was truly remarkable. Well, finally, as you know, there's an electric automobile company here in the Silicon Valley uh, called Tesla Motors. You, you going to buy one of these? I am hoping that the royalties from my book will allow me to live the life of leisure that I dream of. So uh, I, I fear that I, as a, as a poor college professor, am not necessarily in the position to uh, to afford a sixty to 70000 uh, at least the sports car version. So I'm counting on the, the next version, the, the 2G version, which is supposed to be more aimed at the middle class. Uh, and it is a very exciting development because I think this is a, a company that has very astutely understood why people are excited about electric vehicles. And because Tesla had no family, had no company that it was a long, long-lived company that was continuing to use his name, the Tesla motor entrepreneurs appropriated the, the name of this great inventor and did so, I think, quite wisely to signal that they're going to do something high-tech, something revolutionary, something visionary. And I think that that's one of the reasons why the company is doing so well. Bernie Carlson, thank you so very much for speaking with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. W. Bernard Carlson is a historian. He's a professor of science, technology, and society at the University of Virginia, and he is the author of Tesla, Inventor of the Electric Age. Okay, well, that's power as we knew it and how we now know it, but what about new power as we might know it? can't say no to that. <laughs> well, there are encouraging developments in fusion and hydrogen energy sources. It's power to the people on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Tesla and Edison got the ball rolling as far as moving electricity from point A to point B or to points B, C, and D, and E, and so forth. We're facing the challenge today of creating new technologies for generating electricity, and one of the new technologies is an old one. It's fusion. We, we, we talked about how you get the electricity from the generating plant to the people, but fusion technology is a new way of making the generating plant. Instead of burning hydrocarbons, Let's uh, turn hydrogen, which is, after all, in water, and turn it into helium, which is in balloons. 
and we get a lot of energy out. That's what the sun does is make all this helium one of the things that the sun does, that's right? How the, that's what makes the sun shine is fusion, yes. Well, it sounds like a great idea, fusion technology. Why hasn't it come about? Yeah. Well, the problem here is that uh, if you want a power source like the sun, you have to actually mimic what happens inside the sun. And when you go right into the center of the sun, which is where the fusion takes place, you've got extraordinarily high pressures and high temperatures. And, and it's producing those high temperatures and high pressures in a, in a generating plant or in a laboratory to prove that it works. That's the problem. How do you do that? You know, you squeeze all this gas down, but it's so hot and it's got so much pressure, you can't just put it in a bottle. It's, it's a hard thing to do. And not long ago, you visited one of these facilities, the National Ignition Facility in Livermore, California. I did, the NIF. And Was it nifty? Uh, actually, it was quite nifty because they've got this huge phalanx of lasers, and, and they're aiming these lasers all onto this little tiny BB-sized piece of material, which has some hydrogen in it, and they're trying to turn some of that hydrogen into helium. Now, I've read that fusion technology is not quite ready for prime time. So for an update on the situation there, I spoke with physicist Michael Dunn, and he's the program director of the Laser Fusion Energy Project at the National Ignition Facility. His job, make fusion technology not just a laboratory experiment, which is what it has been, but a practical device. Okay. And again, just a reminder of what fusion is. Yes, the fusion is the process that powers the sun and all the stars. It's combining together the, the tiniest atoms of hydrogen to form helium, and in doing so, releasing very large amounts of energy, but safely and in a way that will be environmentally sustainable for millennia. So when you say environmentally sustainable, I mean, fission has this bad reputation that it produces nuclear waste that we still don't know what to do with, uh, it might be dangerous and so forth. Does all that apply to fusion as well? So this is where fusion really shines out. You know, first of all, you know, there's limited sources of uranium or fossil fuels in the world, whereas for fusion, you only need literally a drop of fuel per person per year. And so you can sustain that for probably millions of years. And the waste product is primarily helium gas. And so you don't have the long-lived radioactive waste problems that you have for fission. Now, Mike, in nature, fusion is as common as carbuncles. As you've mentioned, it's the energy source for stars. But stars can heat their centers to millions of degrees and keep that gas in there with gravity. Fusion scientists are trying to do the same to somehow mimic the conditions in the center of the sun right there in your lab. What's the trick for doing that? How can you possibly do that? Yeah, the trick, first of all, is to start small. You know, there's a reason the sun is 93 million miles away. You wouldn't want that in your backyard. But if you can produce a miniature sun that can use the same process and produce lots of energy, then you have a power source. Now, you can't use gravity like the sun does if you've got a tiny amount of fuel. You've got to find another way. And there's really two ways that our society is looking at to get there. The first is using magnetic fields to hold and heat up a small amount of fuel to very high temperatures. And the second is using high-power lasers, some of the largest lasers in the world, to compress and heat that tiny amount of fuel to the same kind of conditions that you would get in the center of the sun. So that's what you've got. You've got a whole bunch of lasers. We do indeed. We have, in fact, the largest laser in the world by, by some margin, probably a factor of 50 or 100 bigger than anything else in the world. Well, I've actually seen it. It was in a building, as I recall, something like three football fields long. Right. Quite an impressive uh, piece of equipment. All, all these lasers are aimed at a small speck of material that contains some hydrogen, presumably. How often do you fire those lasers? So the lasers fire once every few hours or so. You know, it's a research facility to figure out how do you make a laser that size operate effectively and reliably? And how can you use it to heat up those tiny specks of hydrogen gas to very high temperatures? If this were a commercial power plant... Then there's a difference. Right there, it would operate more like an engine. You know, think about your car engine sitting at the light. It revolves around about a thousand times a minute, a few times a second. And we'd need to do the same with fusion. But rather than a few hundred horsepower, you would have a few million horsepower engines. So you would be firing the lasers more than once a second? or We would, typically about 10 times a second, uh, and injecting the fuel. It is very similar to an engine. We inject the fuel. In our case, the fuel is small, BB-sized pellets of hydrogen. We then compress the fuel with a piston. In our case, the piston isn't a mechanical piston, it's a laser. The fuel ignites and gives off energy. 
and be exhausted and cycle around again for the next time. If you do that 10 times a second, you get off enough power to heat and power a city the size of San Francisco. So you've been doing this in an experimental mode. That's a research facility where you are. You fire the lasers, some of the hydrogen eventually fuses into helium and you get energy out. But of course, you put energy in firing the firing the lasers. So how much do you get out compared to what you put in? Right. So here's the big issue. You know, people have been doing fusion research for many years, about 50, 60 years or so. And through all that time, the amount of energy that comes out has always been less than the energy that goes into the system. And so the the National Ignition Facility, the NIF facility, the laser that you mentioned, is the first system ever built that has the potential to get more energy out than in. And by some margin, by a margin that would be at the level needed for a full-scale power plant. Well, until then, I mean, it sounds like Las Vegas, right? I mean, you put more in the slot machine than you get out. What's the time scale, you think, for, I guess you call it breaking even, where you get as much energy out as you put in? So we had hoped to be there about this time last year. Now, it turns out we didn't quite get there. You know, we started off about a factor of 50 or 100 away from where we needed to be. And over the course of those three years, we got to within a factor of about two of where we need to be. But we still have to jump that final factor of two. All right. Well, it sounds like you're upbeat. Now, I read a recent article in Science News that was kind of down on fusion, which said that despite the computer simulations predicting this break-even energy point, it, it hadn't happened, and it might be a very long way off. What's the problem? The issue is, as the lasers compress the fuel, can they get all the way to the very highest pressures, very highest temperatures that reproduce what's going on at the center of the sun? Now, it turns out that as you compress this fuel, getting to higher and higher densities, higher and higher pressures, at the very last moment, the fuel distorts, so releases the pressure. And the trick, the the objective of the NIF, the the tuning of the engine that we're going through, is to make sure the lasers are pointed at exactly the right place and the tiny fuel pellet is made as round as possible to prevent that distortion from disrupting the ignition, disrupting the fusion burn. And so we have high expectations that we will get there in the not-too-distant future, although, of course, it's almost impossible to predict exactly when. Well, let me see if I understand this. You're aiming these lasers at this little BB-sized pellet, and the idea was that, you know, when you did that, you put a lot of energy, a lot of pressure on that pellet. It's going to implode, compressing the hydrogen gas in there, heating it up, and so forth, producing fusion, but that, in fact, the BB is kind of behaving like a balloon when you squeeze it, you know, bits of it come shooting out someplace you didn't expect. That's right. I mean, that's a good analogy. And, you know, we get a huge amount of fusion out, you know, world record levels of fusion, but not yet so much that the amount of energy that comes out is more than the laser delivers. And that that is the challenge. Is this a tractable problem with the current approach? I mean, phalanxes of lasers all aimed at a small speck of material, or or do you think you'll need a completely new approach? You know, we think it is. We think this is good enough. And as you can imagine, with a very large scale program, we've been reviewed many, many times by the National Academies and many other people. And the unanimous view of those review committees is that the NIF facility is capable of getting to this point. It's just difficult to predict exactly on what timescale. Will it take a few more months, a few more years? Time will tell. But in principle, as far as our best understanding of the physics and the technology exists at the moment, the uh, uniform opinion is that, yes, the NIF should get there. Well, then finally, Mike, it sounds as if it's not a question of if. (laughs) Fusion's still in our future. Or am I wrong there? Is it possible that some other energy source might do an end run around the idea of turning hydrogen into helium for our energy needs? Well, let's hope there's many solutions to this. I mean, there's a very large project being built at the moment in the south of France, which most of the world actually is collaborating on, called ITER, which also hopes to get to the point of fusion burn and a net power output to break even. And let's hope they get there, and let's hope many other people do also. I think from the NIF perspective, though, we have the opportunity, given that this facility is now complete and and working beyond expectations as a laser, we have the ability to get there in the very near future. Mike Dunn, thank you so much for your time. Not at all. Thank you. Michael Dunn is a physicist, and he is the program director of Laser Fusion Energy at the National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. So it may be that a few years down the road, fusion is the way we're going to produce the electric energy that goes down the wires and comes into your home and, you know, runs everything in your house. So does that solve all our problems then if we have fusion technology? Well, not all of them. I mean, consider your car. 
if you have an electric car, of course, fusion will be indeed providing the fuel for that, if you will. But suppose you you know have a long-distance truck. You can't recharge it all the time every 100 miles or 300 miles, whatever it is. You still might want to have some sort of fuel source for portable devices like cars and trucks and trains. So you need a long-distance fuel or a long-distance energy source, maybe in the same way that Nikola Tesla provided us with a long-distance current. AC current allowed us to send energy long distances, and now we need the equivalent when it comes to our automobiles. Yes, indeed. And we have that now. I mean, we obviously, we have a big infrastructure for distributing gasoline and natural gas. And in the old days, you know, you'd run a lot of this stuff on coal. Okay. But in the future, there may be another possibility. I met up with Tom Baker in a parking lot to talk about cars of the future. He's a chemist and he's the director of the Center for Catalysis Research. Catalysis is... Catalysis. Well, that's when you use some sort of compound to facilitate the chemical reaction of some other compounds. <laughs> he's, he's the director of the Center for Catalysis Research and Innovation at the University of Ottawa. Well, Tom, we're standing in a parking lot right now. What's the fuel system behind most of the cars in this parking lot right now as we stand here? Gasoline. Okay. Now, let's say we jump ahead, I don't know, 50 years, 100 years. Uh, what will be operating these cars? Not these cars, but cars in the future. Well, I think that's going to depend on their usage of the car. But for cars that are going to be driven long distances, I believe they will be operating on hydrogen fuel. Okay, so you see hydrogen as the fuel of the future. Absolutely. And what is the source of this hydrogen? The only source of hydrogen that is going to make sense for the future is if we can make it from sunlight and water. And what is it about hydrogen in particular that is such an attractive fuel source for you? It has a very high energy density and it's also a renewable fuel. So it gives us the opportunity then to be able to use the fuel and regenerate the fuel and so we're not um, using up or exhausting a natural resource. The sun, or the sun is shining down on us right now, that's a renewable fuel or it's an infinite fuel supply, energy source, why not the sun? Well, it is using the sun. Because you're using the sun to make the hydrogen from the water, you are essentially using the sun as your energy source. And when, when, you, make, when you use the water to split to make the hydrogen, when you uh, use it in the fuel cell, you run it backwards. You use the hydrogen, combine it with air, and make the water back again. So you're not actually consuming the water, only the sunlight. Now, water, you said, is the source of the hydrogen. Water is H2O, so you have two hydrogen atoms and you have oxygen. Yeah, that's right. I have the two in the right place. But the trick is that you have to separate the two, and that's not easy to do. If anyone's looked at a glass of water, how do you get in there and separate the hydrogen from the oxygen? It's really a good question, and it's part of the reason that we can't do this today. So the two big questions are getting the right catalysts for actually doing the so-called water-splitting reaction, and then, as you say, doing the separation of the two gases in order that we can use the one as our fuel. And is the idea that that separation might happen in the car, or where would this happen? You'd, you'd put the water into your car, and then you'd have the mechanism to separate it there, or you separate it outside your, your vehicle, so you have a big tank of hydrogen. Where does it occur? Well, this really depends on how you want to use the hydrogen in the vehicle. So um, if you're just going to use a pressurized tank of hydrogen on your car, then yes, you do have to create that infrastructure for moving the hydrogen around the country into your service station. The, the, the approach that, that we and others are taking is to use a chemical hydride where the hydrogen is only produced at the source of the fuel cell on the vehicle. So the chemical hydride is moved around you know, as the chemical, and the hydrogen is only used in the plant to regenerate the fuel. Okay, chemical hydrides, and, and what are those? Well, a chemical hydride is just a um, compound that contains the hydrogen that you're going to need for your vehicle. So taking a simple example of something like formic acid, which is HCO2H, in that particular example, you would use a catalyst to turn it into CO2 and hydrogen and use the hydrogen in your car. What is that example? Is a solid form of hydrogen? Well, we would like it to be a liquid so that it, it resembles um, the gasoline that we use nowadays so that we could drop it into the existing fueling infrastructure. Okay, so if we could use hydrogen directly on the car, that would be the ideal um, example. Mm -hmm. 
but that's harder to do. We don't know how we would use oxygen or water on your car to actually generate the hydrogen to use as your fuel and the oxygen at the same time. If we have a liquid fuel that just has a lot of hydrogen in it and we use a catalyst to bring that hydrogen out on the car, we feel that would be a safer alternative and also would take less uh, volume on your car in order to store the same amount of energy. Now, there are a number of people now getting into their cars and, and driving away. Um, they're using an, an internal combustion engine. Would this be a different kind of engine with a, a hydrogen car? That's correct. It's a, it's a fuel cell engine, which works on an electrochemical principle, and is much more efficient than the internal combustion engine. Well, Tom, this sounds wonderful. Hydrogen sounds like it could be the fuel of the future. But when will this technology be perfected? What will it take? What's the big challenge? Well, I think the first market that we'll see penetration in is really for the long-haul transportation. Right now, as you still have some low prices in things like natural gas, the motivation uh, to going to hydrogen is still going to take some time. So when you talk about a long-haul vehicle, you mean trucks and things like that? That's right. Yeah, because trucks are are what really makes sense uh, for this technology because you can avoid the CO2 that they're making as they as they move the goods around North America and we don't have the train infrastructure to move the um, the freight that they do in some other countries so we, we can move a certain amount of freight on trains but uh, because we need to use trucks this would be a good place to introduce this technology first. Okay and the benefits are you don't have the pollutants it's a renewable energy source? Exactly this would be a renewable fuel versus what we do now. Tom Baker thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much, Molly. Tom Baker is a chemist, and he's the director of the Center for Catalysis Research and Innovation at the University of Ottawa. Coming up, cutting-edge maritime technology in Napoleon's era and another plan to harness energy from the sun. It's Power to the People from Big Picture Science. Hydrogen-fueled cars may be the way we tool down the highway someday. And when we don't need to produce portable power, uh, perhaps fusion energy could be the future. But i got to say that there's another technology that I figure has a good shot for being the power source of the 21st century. What might that be? Ocean tides or maybe methane hydrates from the bottom of the ocean? Maybe those squirrels you were talking about earlier running around in cages or something? If you could put squirrels in cages. Well, you can put them in the cages. They just don't do much once they're in there. But imagine this. Imagine a phalanx of orbiting satellites. Each satellite has a giant solar panel. It's a whole bunch of power sats. A power-producing satellite. Right. Paul Young, who's the director of a company called PowerSat Limited, explains how they work. Right, PowerSat. Um, If you can imagine solar panels in space, and then the solar panels collect the sun's energy, they convert it to uh, electricity, but they then convert the electricity into microwaves, and then beam the microwaves down to the Earth. So the idea is to produce electrical energy, not here on the surface of the planet, but in in space somewhere, in orbit. Exactly. But when it's beamed down to the planet, then um, it's uh, detected by what they call the rectanner array, which is a big, big array, something like six kilometers across, with microwave rectifying diodes in it. So that's then converted to DC power, and then the power can be conditioned to however you like, to 110 volts, 240 volts. Okay, so in other words, uh, you replace all the power-generating plants on Earth. I mean, if you you had enough of these things, you replace all the power-generating plants on Earth with these power sats, and so you don't have uh, train loads of coal going to the power plant that you have to burn. Exactly. So you've got your structure, infrastructure in space, which will cost about the same as a nuclear power plant, about $6 billion. Then you don't have the uh, revenue sink of having to transport all your fuel. And then you also don't have the problem of getting rid of your waste, whether it be nuclear or ash. So, so no waste. And since it's in space and it's solar powered, there are no emissions and no greenhouse gases? No, no. So in other words, you've generated this energy in space from sunlight. By converting sunlight into electricity, then you convert that electricity into microwave 
radiation. I mean, it's just a radio wave, really. You beam it down, and this beam is such low density that even birds flying through the beam, they're not going to get cooked. You can't get a bird sandwich out of this. I'm afraid you can't. Much as I like duck, <laughs> you can't get, get, get that, no. <laughs> well, this sounds like a great idea. I mean, it, uh, can, can you get a lot of energy this way? I mean, how much energy can you get? Um, depends on the size of your array. The way we've been looking at it is we have lots of small satellites, uh, you know, tens of meters across, and then we send up, use that as a trial first, then we send the next one up and the next one and the next one, and they all synchronize together, so they fly in a constellation, much like the constellation satellites that already exist. Power sats sound to me like the answer to the, uh, you know, all the problems around producing energy here. No emissions, no fuel, no fossil fuel problems such as, you know, the politics associated with buying oil or coal or stuff like that. I mean, this just sounds ideal. Why is it not up there now? Well, a couple of things. I think some people in government think it's science fiction, whereas it's not. You know, every, all the technology, we've already got it here. The other thing is, of course, political motivation. If we could do this worldwide in cooperation with all governments, we could have strings of these things orbiting a geostationary orbit, and um, we could supply the world's power easily. What about the cost? So you've indicated that you could build one of these things at a cost comparable to producing generating capability here on the Earth. Is cost not an issue? Yes, it is, and that's it probably that is probably the main reason why it hasn't really taken off. But it's the politics as well. So when are we going to have power sets orbiting over our heads? <laughs> well, in our initial plan, we're going to make it for 2015. But I'd say you know we're a good seven to ten years away, unfortunately. Seven to ten years is, you know, that might be long for you to wait or for an individual, but, you know, in terms of overall paradigm shifts and how we produce energy, it doesn't sound that long to me. No, it's not. I mean, it takes about the same time as it takes to build a nuclear plant. Paul Young, thank you so much for talking with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Paul Young is the director of PowerSat Limited in the UK. So, Seth, is this a blue sky, I mean, it'd be really blue sky since it's out in orbit, a blue sky idea, or do you think that it'll actually come to fruition? Well, as Paul said, all the technology has been developed. It's all for real. And it's just a matter of getting the political will to do it and also the money because there's a big capital cost. But once you built the thing, you know, it doesn't cost much to run it. Oh, so it's just limited by political will and money. That's all. That's it. Yeah. No severe constraints anywhere. All right. Well, we've been talking about a lot of cutting-edge power technology, but there was a time when cutting-edge technology was found here. About two centuries ago, steamships were changing the world. Suddenly, international trade was growing quickly, economies were expanding, and ships were crashing into coastlines. Now, Napoleon, who was busying himself trying to build a French empire, realized how much his plans on that empire depended on safety at sea. So he recruited a brilliant young French scientist, Augustin Fresnel, to help out with a better lighthouse. Well, let me start by one of the common misapprehensions about lighthouses, which is that if people think of them as, as a piece of engineering, they often think about the towers as somehow sort of difficult to build. But in fact, what's really amazing about the lighthouses are not so much the towers themselves, but these lenses that you find in them, which were some of the most challenging pieces of technology to make in the 19th century and really sort of transformed what a lighthouse was. Historian Teresa Levitt shares the tale of how these remarkable new lenses were designed and built in her book, A Short Bright Flash, Augustin Fresnel and the Birth of the Modern Lighthouse. Teresa, what are the earliest lighthouses that we know about? Well, there actually are two lighthouses among the seven wonders of the ancient world. There's the Pharos of Alexandria, which is often thought of as you know, so the first lighthouse. And then actually the Colossus of Rhodes was supposed to be a lighthouse too. But in fact, what these lighthouses were, usually these ancient lighthouses usually function essentially as harbor lights. So they would be used to mark the entrances to ports. And that's more or less what nearly all lighthouses were up until the 19th century. Nowadays, we think of lighthouses as, as something which is going to sort of warn you away from a dangerous spot. And if you're in a ship and you see a lighthouse, you know that you have to stay away from the shore at that point. But they really only began to have that function in the 19th century once you were able to get these brighter lights. 
Okay, so so the first one that everybody agrees was one mm-hmm. of the first ones. It was the pharaohs. Like, in fact, the word mm-hmm. pharaoh, I mean, that, that means lighthouse in many languages, right? Exactly. And the study of pharology is sort of the technical <laughs> term for, <laughs> for lighthouses. I, I thought that was measuring your head. Okay, <laughs> pharology. Uh, and and we, when you say pharaohs, it was right off the uh, harbor there in Alexandria exactly. in Egypt. But it has nothing yes. to do with the pharaohs. It was just, what, the name of the island or something? Yes, yes, that's right. Okay, so lighthouses are invented 2,300 years ago, whatever. But around 1800, which is, after all, only 200 years ago, lighthouses, which had just been sort of fires on top of towers or whatever, they suddenly came in for a redo. And I think Napoleon was involved with that. What was the deal here? Why did suddenly lighthouses become the in technology? <laughs> well, uh, Napoleon did have a hand in it. So right at the moment when he has this expanding power and he's uh, conquered more or less all of continental Europe, he comes up with the idea that he's going to have this lighthouse commission, which is going to, I think his phrase is sort of improve lighthouses and the entirety of his empire. And he has the idea that he wants to make this scientific. He wants to make this technical. And so he brings together a commission which is composed not only of Navy men and government officials, but also some of the best scientists of the day. And one of them uses this as an opportunity to sort of bring in a a young physicist that he's mentoring. And once the physicist gets involved, he sort of recognizes an optical trick that could vastly improve what's going on. Well, Well, wait a minute here. Was there a problem for the sailors in that the lighthouses were just not visible far enough away? What what was the fundamental problem that needed to be solved. Well, this was the problem. So usually in the the sort of cutting edge technology at the turn of the 19th century, it usually involved having an oil lamp and then you could try putting a mirror behind it to try to reflect the light behind it and, and would shine it out. And the claim was that this could produce a light that you could see from 10 miles, some even claimed up to 12, even 15 miles away. But the truth of the matter is usually these lighthouses could be seen from about 5 to 7 miles away. And the, and the problem is that's really not far enough. Okay, so Napoleon decides he wants to build an improved lighthouse. He has to have a brighter light. He brings in this young physicist, Augustin Fresnel. Uh, yes. Tell me something about Fresnel. I mean, what, what kind, was he an imposing kind of guy? <laughs> Fresnel, he's like a classic in, in some ways, I think, like a romantic, tragic figure in some ways. I mean, he's this young man. You can tell from his letters home, he's just sort of burning with ambition. Uh, he spends his time sort of dreaming of new scientific theories, and he actually comes up with some startlingly uh, original ones. But he's completely outside of the sort of normal scientific circles in Paris. But he's able to find one person who's willing to listen to him. And this person does happen to be one of the members of this Lighthouse Commission. So he decides that he wants to bring Fresnel to Paris so that they can work together a little bit better. And the Lighthouse work becomes a way then to do this. I'm going to go into the technology just a little bit. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm always interested in the technology. So they had lighthouses that consisted of a light source, whether it was an oil lamp or coal or a fire or whatever, eventually electric lamps. And, And they want to make that brighter so they could put a mirror behind it. That might make it brighter. Fresnel comes in and he says, you know, maybe it would work better if instead of having a mirror, we had a lens. Right. But, of course, in order to send this light out in a parallel beam, a lens has to have a very short focal length because otherwise the lens would be too big. And it, that means it's really thick in the middle and small at either end. And so that's a kind of lens that might weigh, I don't know, hundreds of pounds, maybe more. That, that would be a very unwieldy thing. So Fresnel comes up with a solution to that, right? He does. I mean, the problem, for one thing, these lenses would be impossible to build. They'd be way too thick and, you know, they'd lose a lot of light that was going through them. And then they would be so heavy that they wouldn't be able to turn around, which is what, you know, revolving lighthouses are supposed to do. So the trick is you somehow have to lose all of that bulk. And he figured out that if what you do is make individual prisms that could be much thinner, but then you just arrange them carefully enough so that the light was all pointed in the same direction into a single beam, you could get the function of one of these enormous lenses while having it be very light and very trim. And that's really solved the whole problem. Well, can you give me an example of what the effects were on ocean navigation? I mean, were there fewer shipwrecks or... Well, so the lenses really sat in the middle of this absolute explosion in sea transportation. And they probably weren't the most important one. Probably steam technology was more important, but they were centrally involved in the whole process. So the chief thing that you see in the 19th century is just an utter transformation in sort of the interconnectedness of the globe in many ways. I mean, this is the moment when when you really get a sort of physical globalization of places around the world sort of trading readily with one another. And what you see is that 
usually when a location became economically interesting in any way, a Fresnel lens sort of immediately appeared. Often it was one of the first things that you saw happening as soon as something became sort of connected to this larger global world. How to tell when you've arrived. (laughs) There's a a Fresnel lens in the neighborhood. (laughs) Well, finally, Teresa, do we still need lighthouses? I mean, 2,000 years after the Pharos lighthouse outside of Alexandria, Egypt, are, are they finally obsolete? I mean, I I hate to say yes. They're certainly no longer as central. I mean, in the age of GPS, most people know where they are most of the time. Most of the shores have been pretty well mapped. But but it is amazing in many ways, you know, the, the hold that they have on people's imaginations and just how persistent they are as these sort of objects that awe and inspire. There's quite a bit of effort to preserve them, isn't there? There is. I mean, in fact, sometimes it's striking that you know, sort of more money goes into efforts to preserve them than originally had been developed them. Well, Teresa Leffitt, thank you so very much for a very illuminating discussion. (laughs) Well, thank you. And thank you for the optical pun. Teresa Leffitt is a historian at the University of Mississippi, and she is the author of A Short, Bright Flash, Augustine Fresnel and the Birth of the Modern Lighthouse. You know, you don't think about lighthouses as anything other than just pictorial objects, but they were very important to navigation 150 years ago. Well, and I hate to think of them disappearing, as the two of you said. All this energy now and money is being put into preserving them, probably more than went into actually building them in the first place. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. Well, one thing we're certain about on the subject of power, Big Picture Science, is powered by our production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to the episode Power to the People. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, you might just find and download our Big Picture Science app. You'll find it on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because, after all, it uses a bunch of technology developed by Nikola Tesla, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Frankenstein. You're putting me on. No, it's pronounced Frankenstein. You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced Igor. But they told me it was Igor. Well, they were wrong then, weren't they?